invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 20. If you don't have a Bible, um, I don't know, are there Bibles on the back table? I don't, are there some back there? Um, if there are not, my wife is grabbing a few. If you need a Bible, there will be some in just a moment on the back table. Um, and then, of course, I'll have most of the text on the screen as well this evening. Luke 20, we're continuing to walk through Luke 20, or Luke for that matter. Finishing our time in Luke 20 this evening, next week we'll be in Luke 21, title of the message, Being Consistent Believers. Uh, Luke 20 is all about controversy, debates between Jesus and others, as we are in Jesus' final week before his death, and he is debating. Last week and the week before, as we were in Luke 20, verses 20 to 26, um, we saw a controversy between Jesus and and the Herodians and the scribes and Pharisees. And uh, the question being, should we pay taxes? And Jesus gives that answer, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God's. Uh, a, a answer which was uh, surprising in its simplicity and uh, one that did not allow them to ensnare him as they had hoped to do in controversy. We're going to see another controversy this evening. Another attempt to ensnare Jesus in such a way as to distract others from his ministry and to perhaps get him on the bad side of uh, various groups of people. And as I studied this a couple of weeks ago as I was writing this sermon, I found myself uh, on, on somewhat familiar ground. Jesus is going to get into a legitimate theological debate with religious thinkers of his day. Now, those of you who know your pastor know that I do love to think. I love theology. I love uh, digging in. A part of that is the joy of thinking, the joy of learning. Uh, young people, sometimes you get to the point where you, you lose that joy. You, you're learning and you're growing and you get to the point where you say, oh, I'm, I'm just so sick of learning. I can't wait till the day that I graduate and I don't have to learn anymore. I hope that you come to the point where you, you again learn to love learning. Because learning is a blessing from the Lord. And it's something that should not stop just because, uh, just because you, you move on to your, the next phase in your life. I hope that you always want to learn. But a part of that is also you know, the desire to be accurate. We, we learn and we study because we desire to be accurate. But the interesting thing about theology, about learning, is that there are some very carnal, very fleshly dangers that lurk among those valid and, for all intents and purpose, purposes, virtuous desires to dig and to learn and to study and to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And what we're going to find today is, is that there is a danger in thinking too hard, going too deep, creating too much nuance, splitting too many hairs. As I've alluded to already, this message might almost seem uh, a bit hypocritical of me because there are times where I, I, I truly enjoy going down some of those rabbit holes. But remember that, that this message is not a message of prohibition, it's a message of warning. I'm not telling you that going deep is wrong. But what we will see is that going deep can sometimes lead us into muddied waters. It can, it can muddy what is simple. It can distort what ought to be clarified. It can cause us to miss the simplicity and clarity of the scriptures. Now, the focus of the debate this evening is the resurrection. And we will learn about the resurrection some this evening. Jesus will speak of his own divinity and will be reminded of his divinity. But then we'll come to this warning found in the context of these two theological issues, a warning about the lure to become so deeply intellectual or academic, so religious even, so, so deeply entwined in religious ideologies that we fail to be spiritual. God forbid that we should ever become so religious that we fail to be spiritual. God forbid that we should ever do so much thinking and debating about the Word of God that we forget to obey the Word of God. So let's dig into the text this evening. There's quite a bit to say. We're in verse 27 of Luke 20. The Bible says this, Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection, and they asked him. So we, we start here. Luke introduces the context of our first controversy this evening by introducing both of the actors involved. The particular elements of their theology in question, namely that they deny the idea 
that mankind will experience a resurrection after death. And let's take a few moments to talk about the Sadducees together. Those of you who have uh, who were here on our Tuesday night series where we talked through the intertestamental period will understand a little bit more about the Sadducees and who they were. Throughout the New Testament, we see two groups of people generally indistinguished, undistinguished from one another, uh, but, but historically are very, very different from one another. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. We don't see them in the Old Testament. They're only in the New and a lot of times you read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees or woe unto you Pharisees or, or whatever the case may be, but they were very, very different groups of people. These two groups in many ways were the polar opposites who developed during the period between Malachi and Matthew, what we call the intertestamental period, around political and religious systems of the day. Uh, to break it down simply, the Pharisees were the religious fundamentalists of the day. And the Sadducees were the religious liberals of the day. They were almost constantly at odds with one another. And the only reason why we don't see much of this contention, this division in the New Testament, is because they had found an, a common enemy among whom to rally against, right? The, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And they both didn't like Jesus. And so because the Pharisees didn't like Jesus and the Sadducees didn't like Jesus, they were able to unite, uh, put away their petty differences, which weren't actually very petty, but put away their differences to unite under the banner of resisting Jesus. And that's why we don't see a lot of this in the New Testament. They became partners of convenience in order to overthrow Messiah, more or less. But they each had very different reasons for disliking Messiah. At the end of the day, however, they both disliked Messiah. We'll talk through uh, those reasons in just a moment. Um, that did not translate over to that slide very well. My apologies. That, that goes down a little bit farther. I don't know what happened there on that slide. I'll, I'll walk you through that slide a little bit in a moment. Uh, the Pharisees were, were generally derived from among the people. They were zealous for the law. They were people that were identified as loving the law, excited about the, the, uh, the, the traditions of Israel. And so they pursued with gusto these traditions. They announced the things of this life for the things of the eternal. They added to the law a fervent loyalty to the traditions of the rabbis. They were the foundation of what we call today Orthodox Judaism. Orthodox Judaism as it exists today is really just a continuation of Pharisaic thought as it existed in the days of Jesus. The Sadducees were the exact opposite. They were the aristocratic set of priests not from among the common people. You could not just join the Sadducees as you could join the Pharisees. You could not be a commoner as a Sadducee. They were aristocrats. Their name was derived from the word Zadok. Zadok was the high priest in the days of David. He was an exalted, high pri uh, uh, he was an exalted priest in God's eyes. He was blessed greatly by God. He has promises that will come in the end times in the millennial kingdom because of his faithfulness to God. And so they called themselves the Zadokites, which ended up becoming the Sadducees. In the days of Syrian rule, uh, in between the time of Malachi and Matthew, when the king of Syria was attempting to cause the, distinct, the distinctions of Judaism to go away, he was trying to what we'd call Hellenize the Jews, make the Jews Greek. Uh, the, the Syrians, of course, and the Egyptians and everybody in that time was Greek because they were all offshoots of Alexander's conquering, right? Alexander the Great conquered the known world. He died. His four generals took over and they basically Hellenized the known world. And so, uh, so the Syrian kings sought to Hellenize the Jews, to break down Jewish distinctives, to get rid of this silly Jewish God and to make them follow the gods of the Greeks, namely Zeus and the Pantheon, right? The Pantheon of mythological gods. So this was their desire. And the Sadducees were on board with this change. The Sadducees were a group that, that the Syrians put in power, right? Because they were aristocratic. So, so they, they got rid of the ones they didn't like and they put into power these men who were on their side. And this became the Sadducees. To this end, um, they were not very loyal to the Jewish traditions. They were not loyal to the Jewish law. They were far more loyal to, let's say, Aristotelian thinking, Plato, Aristotle, Herodotus, the Greek thinkers. 
than they were necessarily to the Old Testament scriptures. Now, the Sadducees were in power until the days of the Maccabees. The Maccabees were men who, who arose in the days of the Syrian kings and sought to overthrow the Syrian kings, and they did a good job of it, and then to bring Judaism back into full force. And they really did that. And so the, the Jews were, were brought back to, to this literal interpretation of the Old Testament law. They became very orthodox, and all of Israel maintained that orthodoxy from that point on. And that's where the Pharisees came from. The Pharisees came out of that, that conflict, and the Pharisees had maintained power in Israel from that point on. Now, on the Sanhedrin council, which is the council that Jesus stands before, Paul stands before, there was a mixture of Pharisees and Sadducees, but there were always more Pharisees than Sadducees, just as uh, like we would have in Congress today, right? You either got more Republicans than Democrats or more Democrats than Republicans, and whoever has more, you would say they are in power, right? They are in power. Well, the Pharisees had been in power now for a long time, and that was by the will of the people. If we were to break down the differences in theology between these two groups, this is what we'd find. It's on that, the, the, the chart here. I, I apologize. It does run off the screen. Uh, it doesn't look that way in my notes. Um, the Pharisees believed every soul to be immortal. In other words, that, that souls were eternal. That the righteous will receive another body. That the wicked will be eternally punished. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They did not believe in punishment or reward. They did not believe in, an etern in, in, in the afterlife. They were materialists. They believed that you died and you were done. Very Greek thinking, uh, more so. I mean, obviously, Greek had their afterlife ideas as well, but not in the intellectual circles. Those were Greek myths. They weren't Greek. There was that, that, that hard divide between the, the intellectuals and the religious. Uh, the Pharisees believed in the existence of angels and spirits. Obviously, the Sadducees, being materialists, did not believe in those things. Uh, Pharisees believed in complete divine sovereignty, but not to the exclusion of man's moral responsibility. So they saw a harmony between man's free will and God's sovereignty. Uh, Sadducees denied God's sovereignty, believing that God was incapable of allowing evil and that man is working entirely outside of God's sovereign will. In other words, that man is working outside of God's control completely, or else God could not be God because God's allowing evil. That was their idea. The Pharisees believed in very strict adherence to the Torah, very strict adherence to the law. Like Orthodox Jews today, a, a huge list of do's and don'ts. The Sadducees only recognized the Torah, not the traditions. I'm sorry, the Pharisees also recognized traditions. They added on top of the Torah much more. And uh, the Sadducees only recognized the Torah, and they saw rebellion against rabbis as a commendable thing. Uh, and, and this, again, is an extension of Greek thought, right? That, that always question, always be skeptical. This is, this is the way the Greek thinkers were. Always be skeptical, always question truth. The, the Pharisees said, no, identify truth. The Sadducees said, question truth. So they were intellectuals. Um, Pharisees saw all Gentiles as inherently unclean before God. The Sadducees rejected these demands of cleanliness altogether. And then the final one, Pharisees rejected worldliness and the Sadducees accepted a measure of worldliness. They accepted a measure of outside thinking. Obviously, if they were being Hellenized at one time, that does not surprise us. Now, as I read through those lists, the amazing thing is that as we read the position of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, we at Legacy Baptist Church um, would, would fall far more on the side of... of Biblical literalism, right? As you read through the list of the Pharisees' attributes, we would believe a lot of those things too. Now, not necessarily all in the exact same way, but as we see the difference between a religious conservative and a religious liberal, we'd certainly be on the religiously conservative side. Now, does that mean we're doing something wrong? No, but that should be a warning to us, shouldn't it? That when Jesus is saying, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, our tendencies might be to drift in that same direction if we're not careful. Now, on the other end, you have the Sadducees. And when Jesus is talking to the Sadducees, as he will this evening, 
Whereas with the Pharisees, he says, Pharisees, you're, you've got the right things in your mind, but you're a hypocrite. With the Sadducees, he says, look, you all are just way off, right? You're just wrong. And we don't want to be there either, right? We don't want to be there either. So as we look at this spectrum, we don't want to be either of these. But because we lend ourselves more toward literalism and truth and conservatism in religion, in, in, uh, religion and in, in, in biblical thinking, the warnings to us will rest far more on the dangers of hypocrisy than they will necessarily on the danger of doctrinal error, is the idea. And so tuck that in. We'll talk about that as we get toward the end of our time together. So these certain Sadducees, they deny the resurrection and they ask him a question. With this context in mind, now that you know everything you need to know about the Sadducees, here is what they asked him. 28 to 33, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, if any man's brother die having a wife and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren. Here's their scenario. There were seven brethren. And the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her to wife and he died childless. And also the third took her in like manner, the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. So the Sadducees begin here, begin this scenario by quoting the law of Moses, referencing the law of Moses uh, and referencing specifically a doctrine that we call the kinsman redeemer doctrine, right? The idea is in Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5. The Bible says this, if brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of the husband's brother unto her. And there's quite a bit more that the Bible tells us about this kinsman-redeemer relationship. Effectively, the child that the brother has with his uh, dead brother's wife, that, that he would raise up that child unto his brother's inheritance in his brother's name. And that he would, would, would thus, doing so, allow his brother's name to maintain in Israel. In this scenario, which the, the Sadducees give, uh, they give a scenario of seven brothers, right? The oldest takes a wife. He dies without ever having had any children. So the next brother, now that means that, that the next brother is duty-bound to, to, to have and raise up an heir. So the next brother marries the woman, and he dies before they can have any children. And the third, in obedience to the law, takes the woman and he dies before they can have any children. And so all seven brothers marry this woman and die before they can have any children. So this is one of those scenarios. And, and this is what I was talking to you about at the beginning. Our scenarios can get so absurd, right, theologically, that we can start thinking of all of these crazy out there scenarios that, that, that are just absolutely outlandish. And we feel like we have to have answers to these things. And, and, and if, if you don't have an answer to this, then it's a gotcha question. Oh, now I can disprove your theology because you can't answer this deeply strange, obscure scenario uh, that, that would never even come to be, right? So they ask him and they give this scenario. Finally, after the seven brothers die, in order just to tie up all their loose ends, the woman dies also, right? And so then the question becomes, whose wife is this is, is, who, who gets this woman to be their wife in the resurrection? Because now seven men uh, have this woman as their wife. So the question, as it plays out, you know, is somewhat absurd. We would think as we walk through this, well, I'm sure that all of the other near kinsmen, kinsmen to this woman are so glad she died before they all had to die first, right? Uh, whose wife will she be? It's a silly hypothetical. It's an unlikely event. But theologians are masters at silly hypotheticals. And so this is not necessarily too far off of something that you might actually hear at some point in time uh, with a friend sitting down asking you questions about can God create a rock he can't lift and those sorts of things, right? These are silly hypotheticals. Jesus answers with, with tremendous insight here, though, right? Verses 34 to 36, he says this, Jesus answering said unto them, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage.
But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. I'd like to uh, briefly give you the parallel passage to this in Matthew. Uh, we know that, that the Gospels often have repeat stories among them. The Matthew parallel gives us a little extra insight into Jesus' answer on this. Matthew 22, verse 29, Jesus says this as he answers them. The first thing he says is this, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. You are faulty. This is a faulty hypothetical, is how he starts out. Because you don't understand the scriptures and you do not understand the power of God. You are, you are straining at, you're splitting hairs, you're straining at gnats because you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. This is helpful to us as we try to gain a perspective on Jesus' answer. It's not just that the Sadducees have a different perspective, a different theological opinion. Jesus is telling them that they are in error, that they have forsaken the truths of Scripture, that it was this disregard for Scripture and their failure to appreciate the power of God that caused them to even think this question mattered. But it also tells us something else. It tells us that Jesus did not take time to entertain the hypothetical based upon false foundations. Again, as we consider what we have been learning on Sunday mornings about interpretation, we're never going to get anywhere with people if we're arguing about stuff that doesn't matter. There's just no need to do that. There's no need to argue about things that don't matter. There's no need to follow a person onto faulty theological assumptions to argue their questions. We don't have to do that. We can open the Word of God and say, this is what the Bible says, and the assumptions that undergird your question are faulty. And of course, if you're dealing with a believer, they cannot understand these spiritual things anyway. Go to the Gospel. Stick with the Gospel. Stay on the gospel because the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot know them. He cannot discern them because they are foolishness unto him. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So Jesus corrects them with the scriptures. And he hits the root of their problem, which is that they don't believe that the resurrection is even a thing. Why are you, why are you giving a, a situation, a hypothetical that involves the resurrection when you don't even believe the resurrection exists? Unbelievers do this all the time to people. They will, they will charge the church, they will charge individual believers with something, and you read their charge or you listen to their charge and you say, look, you don't even read the Bible, so why are you charging my God with anything? You don't even know what the Bible says, and yet you're making these outlandish claims. It's kind of that idea here. Jesus is saying, look, you don't even believe, you, you don't even understand the resurrection. You don't even believe in the resurrection your, your problem here that, that has brought you to this question, this scenario, is that you, you don't know the scriptures. So let's get that solved first. So Jesus reminds them that marriage is a privilege of this world. That man created in innocence, fitted for a material world, needed a help meet. Between this man and woman, as they became one flesh, they were more together than they were apart. That the whole of the married couple was greater than the sum of the two individuals. We'll talk more about that later. But in the resurrection, Jesus says, this will not be the case. I love this. I love what Jesus says here. I love the implications for the resurrection. Jesus says, those who are worthy to obtain that world, that would be the world that is to come, the resurrection. Those that are worthy to obtain that world, eternal life in the presence of God, neither marry nor are they given in marriage. The resurrection fits man for a different existence altogether. When you die and you're put in the ground, should the Lord tarry? And then the Lord calls us to, to himself and we receive our resurrected bodies. It's not going to be a body fitted for this earthly existence anymore. It's not going to be a body that's fitted to live in this existence. It's going to be a resurrected body fitted for a resurrection existence. The resurrection fits man into a different existence altogether. And in the world to come, there will be no marriage. Whereas marriage is a unity of two distinct designs of God, the man and the woman, very distinct, equal, but different. 
And they come together to create a whole, something that the one has that the other one doesn't, and this one has that the other one doesn't, and they come together to complement each other and to make a single whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. In the resurrection, there will be no deficiency. There will be no lack. We will be in the presence of the Lord and we will be complete in Him with nothing lacking, with nothing necessary. But even more than this, there will be nothing that we will desire that we do not have in the existence unto which God has fitted us. We will lack nothing. In the same manner, Jesus says, there will be no marriage, no giving in marriage. There will be no death. The very essence of the resurrection is life eternal. And in this way, Jesus compares the resurrected state of the children of the resurrection to the current state of the angels of God. Angels are immortal beings. They do not marry. They are not given in marriage. They are not subject to the problems of this world, to the nature of this material existence. And so we will be as the angels of God. Now, what does this not mean? Jesus does not say here, nor does the Bible ever imply that when a person dies, he becomes an angel. Angels are separate beings. We know this all the way back from the beginning. The Bible says that the stars sang together, and the stars being a poetic way in Job to speak of the angels, when the earth was being created. A angels are separate beings, unique created beings. We do not become angels when we die. We will be as the angels in that our bodies, our resurrected bodies, will be fitted for a spiritual existence. The text never says, never even implies, nor is there any reason within the pattern of meaning, meaning to believe that humans become angels. They are distinct entities, but they will be fitted for the same purpose in the resurrection. So Jesus is saying in the resurrection, this existence that God is going to fit us with will be more like the angels than it will be like this earth in particular ways. And that makes sense as we study the resurrection. We'll get to that again in a little bit. So the answer to their question, the answer to the question of these Sadducees, this hypothetical, is effectively this. Well, here's the thing, Sadducees. There is no marriage in the resurrection, so that's your answer. They'll be married to no one. She'll be married to no one. There will be no marriage. Answer, uh, question answered. But Jesus knows who he's talking to here, right? He knows that the hypothetical was not just about marriage in the resurrection, but in reality, the hypothetical in their minds was about the resurrection itself. They don't even believe in the resurrection. They are seeking to put a little egg on Jesus' face here, not just about this difficult hypothetical, but about the very reality of the resurrection, trying to paint the resurrection as absurd is what they're trying to do here. They're trying to make the resurrection itself, the doctrine of the resurrection, sound silly, sound absurd. Jesus knows this. So Jesus continues to speak in verses 37 and 38, and he says this. Now that the dead are raised, so he says no, there's no marriage or giving a marriage, so that, that's, that's a moot point, but that there is a resurrection, he says. Let me talk to you about that for a moment. Even Moses showed at the bush when he calleth the Lord God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. So Jesus here proves the reality of the resurrection by referencing an interaction between Moses and the Lord at the burning bush. We find this interaction back in Exodus chapter 3. And the Bible says this in Exodus 3 verses 4 through 6. And when the Lord saw that he, that would be Moses, turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he, that would be Moses, said, Here am I. And he said, that would be the Lord, Draw not nigh hither, don't come here, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So notice here, God did not say, I was 
the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not the God of beings who do not exist. The Sadducees believed that when a person died, they ceased to exist. Look, if that was the case, God can't say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, this is a nuanced argument, isn't it? But it highlights just how important interpretation of the text, of the words of the text is. You might get into an argument with someone and they'll say, look, the words don't matter. Only the ideas matter. And you can go to Jesus and say, Jesus is hinging an entire argument for the resurrection on the tense of the word, past tense, present tense, of one word in the Hebrew. It mattered to Jesus. And so we are, in many ways, as we interpret the Bible, extending the way Jesus interpreted as we seek to actually take the words of the scriptures and apply them literally. By God's grace, this is what we do. And we trust the word of God, the consistency of God to bring us to a place of clarity and safety in interpretation. All live unto God. Humans are eternal beings fitted for the resurrection unto eternal life or unto eternal death. For more in orthodox circles, for many in orthodox circles, there is no longer a debate about this. Because Jesus makes it quite clear that there is a resurrection. So among Orthodox Christians, we don't really debate this anymore. There is, however, a, a unique group that floats around in and out of Orthodoxy that believes while the righteous are fitted unto eternal life, and so there is a resurrection for the just, they believe that the unjust, the unbeliever, is destroyed. That they burn in, in the lake of fire until they are consumed and then they are annihilated. In fact, it's called annihilationism and it's championed by a group called the Seventh-day Adventists. It was initially an offshoot of the Baptist church um, some 150, 200 years ago. And uh, they believe that while the believer has a resurrection unto eternal life, the unbeliever uh, goes into a place of annihilation, where they burn for their sin until they are consumed. And so the more sin you have, the more you burn until you, you're finally consumed. That would, uh, that would be not just a fundamental error as we would understand it in understanding the resurrection, but it would be a fundamental error of understanding um, why people are punished as well, right? The idea, the, the, that classification idea. But in regard, and, and in regard to this, let me just speak for a moment. This idea of the resurrection of an eternal spirit fitted with a resurrected body is only for the just, is only for the believer. Jesus said this in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear the, his voice, that would be the God, and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, but notice the second part of this. And they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. The Bible speaks of two resurrections. Revelation 20 tells us that the first resurrection is the resurrection of the just, of those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, and those who have followed the revelation of God throughout the, the, the centuries. And this will take place right before the millennial kingdom. So that all the holy and the righteous will, will be a part of that. Following the thousand-year reign of Christ, the Bible says that the unbelievers will be resurrected unto judgment, and then they will be cast into the lake of fire. And Jesus spoke of that fire as the place where the worm dieth not. The fires are not quenched. There's an eternal aspect to it as well. They will receive resurrected bodies fitted unto destruction. To this end, as we sang this evening... Let us be ever desirous to win souls to Christ because there is a horrible fate awaiting those who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. Verses 39 and 40, the Bible says this. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that, they durst not ask him any question at all. Um, I find this fascinating. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were, were partners theologically. 
You had the Sadducees on one side, you had the scribes and the Pharisees on the other. Uh, They were, in in fact, often interchangeable. The scribes loved Jesus' answer here. You could just see, as Jesus is giving this beautiful theological answer, just a grin start coming up on their faces like, oh, wow, they'd never thought of this before. This was a defense that they had never thought of. And interestingly enough, if you dig into history, you'll find that the scribes and the Pharisees had no solid Uh, defense of the resurrection from the Torah. They had it from the Psalms. They had it from uh, all of that, but they didn't have it from the first five books. And they really wanted it from the first five books. Why? Because the Sadducees only recognized the first five books. And so that's what they really wanted. And here, what's, what's fascinating is now Orthodox Jews use this argument all the time. But it didn't even come into existence until Jesus' day. Jesus fed them this fantastic argument. And they are excited. And they say, Master, this is a good one. You did well here. You well said. And Jesus is going to use this uh, to, to, to get onto them in a moment. This is just great stuff. Jesus was a smart guy. He was, I mean, obviously he's God, right? But, but Jesus, he knew his stuff. This is great. If, if, this excites me. Um, if, if you don't notice, this really excites me. So the Jewish scholarly community really grabbed a hold of this. And they use this argument. They, they have used this argument. It's in rabbinic tradition now. And I love that, that you can find Jesus' fingerprints on Orthodox Judaism today in this among some other ways. So they really liked this argument. And this, this argument was a great argument for the resurrection. And we find as well that this instance effectively shuts down the attempts of the Jewish leaders to catch Jesus. Jesus has answered them in many different ways now. Uh, The Sadducees just got hammered on the clarity of the resurrection. The Pharisees got hammered last week with the Herodians on the the whole uh, uh, paying taxes to Caesar thing. And uh, then the Pharisees are pretty happy now because they just got a major doctrinal insight from this man. Right? He clearly outclasses them in theology, in theological understanding, which makes sense since you know, the word theology means the study of God, and Jesus puts the theo in theology, right? Um, so question over, controversies over, Jesus wins, but he's not quite finished yet. And this, this is where things get good. Verses 41 to 44. And he said unto them, he's talking now to, to the group, and, and the Pharisees are there, and he says, how say they that Christ is David's son. And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies my footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? See, Jesus now is about to hit the Sadducees, or the Pharisees with an inconsistency in their theology. He asks, how is it that Messiah is David's son, because he had to come from the line of David, but also David's Lord? And the reason why Jesus asks this question, well, uh, we'll dig into that in a moment. We find in the, the quote in Psalm 110, verse 1, a psalm of David, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And once again, I would like us for for clarity as we we try to well round out this argument to go to the parallel passage in Matthew and understand it as well. Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46, the Bible says this, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. So Christ is the son of David. Very good. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. So a very similar idea here, but we get a little more context to the question itself. So in the Matthew context, Jesus is speaking more specifically to a group of the Pharisees that were there. And this is going to help us as we get back in Luke. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. He's asking them this question, and he's asking them specifically about the relationship of Messiah to David. Back to Luke. So Jesus effectively asked them this. How can Messiah be both the son of David and the Lord of David? David called the Messiah his Lord, indicating that he was a greater than David and that he was presently, currently a greater than David, and yet it is also plain that Messiah would be of the lineage of David. The the Pharisees were convinced 
that Messiah would come of the lineage of David, but what they were not convinced is that Messiah would actually be God, that he would be equal with God. And so now Jesus is asking them this, this question, how can, why would David call him Lord if he's the son of David? Messiah would be a man because he's the son of David, but he must also be divine. That's what Jesus is seeking to prove here because David called him Lord, indicating that the man would be co-equal with God, the very thing that they're trying to stone him for claiming as Messiah, right? Now, this was a major point of division between Jesus and the Pharisees theologically. And this is the genius of Jesus' statement and why he asked it when he did. Okay, he frames a perfect logical argument on the basis of equivalence and interpretive consistency with what he had just said to the Sadducees. Follow me with this. The scribes and the Pharisees heard the answer about the resurrection, and they, based upon Jesus' interpretation, recognized that they could prove from Exodus chapter 3 that the resurrection is valid because God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. They saw this argument, they loved it, and they loved it so much that they said, Jesus, what you just did there was good. What you just did there was right. What you just did was interpretively accurate. We agree with you on this. But then Jesus does something fantastic, and he says, well, let me use the same interpretive method that you just agreed upon to ask you a question. And now let me see how consistent you are going to be theologically as far as your interpretive methods are concerned. If we draw out the same interpretive method in Psalm 110, it proves in the same manner that you just said, this is valid in Exodus 3, in Psalm 110, by the same interpretive method, it proves that Messiah will be God. It proves that the son of David will be the Lord of David because Messiah is God. Now this time, the scribes and the Pharisees are on the disagreeing end. But they're the ones that said, Jesus, your, your argument is good here. This is a valid argument. This is a well-said argument. Jesus says, okay, well, let me use this well-said argument again. Is Messiah God? And Jesus really backs them into a corner here because it's the exact same interpretive method that he uses to prove Messiah is God in Psalm 110 as he uses to prove the resurrection in Exodus 3. And so what do the Pharisees do? They say, uh-oh. And they don't say a word. And now the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes all say, we're not going to ask this guy any more questions because they ask a question, we agree with him, and now he backs us in a corner because we agreed with him. I just love that. I love how Jesus does this here, how he takes this, this statement by the Sadducees and his proof and the agreement of the Pharisees with the proof and uses it to help them see their own interpretive inconsistency, their own hypocrisy. It's fantastic. Jesus is not quite finished yet, though. He has one more thing to say in verses 45 to 47. Then in the audience of all the people... He said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feasts which devour widows' houses for and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. Jesus focuses in on the Pharisees and the scribes here, not on the Sadducees. And Jesus tells the people here to beware of them. It's interesting as, as we see this, you know, this, the Sadducees were theological liberals. They were so far afield of truth that Jesus didn't even necessarily need to warn. When truth, when, when, when truth is here and error is way over here, error is pretty obvious, right? Error is pretty obvious. When, when you turn on the television and you hear those televangelists and they're asking you to give them money and, that, that, and, and, and it's just money all the time and donate and whatnot, that's pretty obvious, right? It's pretty obvious that those guys are snake oil salesmen. But when you get someone that sounds really good and they've got all of their ducks in a row, but then they've got these bits, that's harder to find, isn't it? 
elements of hypocrisy. And Jesus says, he doesn't really warn the people against the Sadducees, because the Sadducees are just out there. They're going to do their thing. They're not even in the ballpark of truth. But the Pharisees claim truth, and they've got a lot of it there. So, but he says, beware of them, because their motives are wrong. Beware of them, because they have embraced hypocrisy. And that is something that we, when we love the truth, but we, we follow leaders who are teaching the truth, but are, who are hypocrites, we can follow them not just into truth, but into their hypocrisy as well. And there's a danger there. So Jesus says, beware of those who desire the fame and the praise and the attention and the honor while simultaneously taking advantage of the innocent while failing to serve God in faithfulness. Beware of those who claim to represent the truth but whose lives fail to show it. Beware of those who have long prayers just as pretense to sound godly. Beware of those who talk the talk but their walk opposes everything that their talk talks. And Jesus states plainly to the hearers that those who claim to represent God and His Word are held to a higher standard than those who do not. Now, in this context, we find the word damnation. He says, they shall receive the greater damnation. In this case, it might be appropriate. We could link this to the warnings in 2 Peter 2 and in Jude about false teachers who will receive great condemnation, damnation for their false teaching. But it's worth noting that the word used here in verse 47, translated damnation is actually uh, simply the word used for judgment. It's the same word that James warns legitimate teachers about in James chapter 3, verse 1. He says, My brethren, be not many masters, that being teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. That word meaning judgment. These are good teachers. These are proper teachers, but we just... The man that stands behind the pulpit and expounds the word of God needs to understand that God will judge him more severely because he has a responsibility because there are people listening to him. There are people taking his word as to what the Bible says and believing it. And so on the day of judgment, your pastor will stand under greater judgment than you will. And that's a biblical fact. It's the same word there, though. So we need to know that, that the idea is that they will be judged, that they will be under greater judgment because they claim to represent God. And we, we have seen this in many different contexts. All right, let's apply as we close our message this evening. Application number one, I'm going to walk back through the text a little bit. Remember that marriage is the union of distinct parts, and it's a reflection of God's design for this time. In the first portion of our text today, Jesus spoke of the controversy surrounding marriage and eternity, and he replied that the children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but not those of the resurrection. This, it's contrasted with the resurrection, where we find that people do not marry, nor are given in marriage, but instead are like the angels, the scriptures tell us, teaching us that, that they are not fitted for this form of companionship, and seemingly as well, they're not fitted for procreation. And as we think about this contrast, it brings up important points about marriage itself that I'd like to bubble up to the surface. I mentioned this a little bit already in our teaching time together, that a married couple, the Bible calls them one flesh. A married couple is more than the sum of its parts. We, we live in a culture that is attempting to assert that men and women are not just equal, but they are the same. That any differences we may perceive are, 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 are just differences of culture or environment or personality. But the Bible is quite clear about the fact that men and women were created distinctly, designed by God, and that they're designed for a particular reason. Now, before we go on, let me be clear about something, and I always make this, try to make this clear. We've explored in previous messages the doctrine of singleness. Nothing I'm about to say is intended to make anybody feel bad or inferior about not being married or feel as though you exist in any way inferior to a married relationship. We know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We know that he says in, in many contexts that it is better, in fact, to be single because you can devote yourself to the Lord. And so this is not intended to say that if you are not married, you are intrinsically incomplete. 
I'm not trying to say that at all. God has given each human the fullest capacity to live unto the Lord himself. But as we look in Scripture, God said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. So God made for him an helpmeet and called her woman. It is doctrinally apparent that within a man and woman, there is something definitively lacking in the whole experience that is fulfilled by another as it relates to a picture of God. To this end, men and women should not be likened unto interchangeable parts, but unto complementary parts that serve two distinct functions, but function better together than either does separately. This is how God made us, and this is important to keep in mind. Don't allow culture to tell you that marriage simply is purposeless, or don't allow marriage to tell you that marriage is just about the teamwork of individuals, or don't allow culture to tell you that marriage is beneficial only because it adds stability and increased efficiency. Marriage is designed by God. It is designed by God. Men and women are complementary parts, which when functioning under the principles of God's design, principles of headship and of love and of submission, function in a unique way that simply cannot be duplicated in any other way. So marriage, the union of distinct parts. And it's a reflection of God's design for this time, for this existence. It will not be needed in the resurrection because there will not be those deficiencies, those lacks, or the need for such a symbol. Number two, the resurrection is a brand new existence in a brand new body. The Bible gives us glimpses into the reality of the resurrected state. It speaks of streets of gold and it speaks of the tree of life and a river flowing through the new Jerusalem and joy and peace and those things. It speaks of the end of war and the end of tears and the end of sorrows and the end of pain. We read in Revelation 21 of the beauty and the, the beautiful nature of of the resurrected state as it relates to the very best that life has to offer. But let me just remind you, if I could, that Revelation 21 describes the resurrection in a manner of speaking insufficiently. Throughout the scriptures, a primary emphasis of the world that is to come is upon its newness, the uniqueness of the eternal state. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 39 to 44. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men and another flesh of beasts, another of fishes and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead." It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. Paul attempts here to describe the unique nature of the resurrection and the resurrected body. Just like the flesh of a fish is different from that of a bird, or is different from that of a cow, uh, I've had my children ask me whether I'm eating pig or a cow, but I've never never had a, a, my children ask whether they're eating cow or fish. They're, they're, they're pretty distinct, right? There's a pretty, now I've had my children call everything chicken, but that's for another reason. Uh, but the idea being that we, we, there are definitive differences, right? Between different types of meat. Just like that, the flesh of the resurrection will be very different from the flesh of this world. Our resurrected bodies will be different bodies, spiritual bodies, fitted not for a natural existence, but a, but a, but a spiritual existence. This is how, how Jesus, as the first fruits of the resurrection, was able in his physical body to pass through locked doors and walls. His body was now fitted for a spiritual existence, though it was a physical body. We'll have different abilities, different desires, different perspectives. Pastor, what do you mean by that? I wish I knew. I wish I knew, but I don't. The Bible doesn't tell us. But what we have are promises that whatever the resurrection will look like, whatever it will feel like, whatever it will be like, it'll be like anything that you've known before. And it will be of a different substance. 
You'll not want then what you want now. You'll not crave then what you crave now. You'll not see things then as you see things now. You will not know things then as you know things now. It will be different. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, I love this verse, but as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things that which God hath prepared for them that love him. It hasn't even entered into your mind or heart what God has prepared for us. Isn't that exciting? That's exciting. Paul's quoting here from Isaiah 64, 4, by the way. To this end, let me speak for you a moment, to you for a moment about the resurrection and the eternal state. It's not uncommon, especially among young people. So young people, listen closely for a moment. To think that the eternal state might be lacking in some way. That life might be boring on the other side of eternity. Have you ever had that thought where it's like, well, if all I'm going to be doing is on my knees praising God for eternity, I don't know that that sounds like a lot of fun. That an eternity of praise or glory to God might sound tedious. Why would I want to go to that kind of a place? We ask something to the effect of, what will I do without fill in the blank of your favorite amusement that you have in this life? What will I do without fill in the blank of your favorite person in this life, right? That person you love, that person you would not necessarily want to do without. When we study 1 Corinthians 15 and we understand the resurrected state and we see this verse in 1 Corinthians 2, those thoughts become silly, don't they? I don't know what we'll be doing necessarily in the resurrection. I don't know if we're going to be spending our time just praising God or if God's going to allow us to travel the universe seeing the wonders of his glory. I don't know what fellowship will be like with loved ones, if we'll know each other deeply, if we'll love each other in the same way, if we'll have memories. The Bible says the former things are passed away. We will not even remember them. Does that mean good and bad? We don't know all of those answers. But what I do know is this. Whatever we will do or will not do, whatever we will do or don't do, there will never be a moment, not even a nanosecond of eternity, which is an, uh, a contradiction in and of itself, right? Because it will be timeless. There will never be a moment of that timeless existence where you will be anything other than 100% satisfied. Can we just leave it at that? What if I'm on my knees for all eternity just praising God? then I guarantee you that's what you will want to do for all of eternity. You will be 100% satisfied with that for all of eternity. Well, what about? No, there's no what about. God will fit us for an existence and that existence will be perfection. And that existence will be satisfaction. And that existence will be joy and that existence will be peace. But I won't have, it won't matter. But what about so-and-so? If... Maybe it's there, maybe it's not. Maybe they're there, maybe they're not. Maybe there's fellowship, maybe there's not, but it won't matter. It won't matter. You will be satisfied. The Bible guarantees it. It will lack nothing. And your resurrected body will be fitted perfectly for that existence. Final point. Let us be doctrinally accurate, but also spiritually obedient. Earlier in this message, we contrasted the different ways that the Sadducees and the Pharisees saw things. We noted that the Sadducees are in error, way off theologically, but that the Pharisees were pretty accurate so far as the law goes. Their problems were twofold. First, they elevated the traditions of the fathers to be on the same level as the Word of God. And secondly, they lived in utter hypocrisy to all of it. And they preached these things, but they didn't live these things, right? And then that, that, that was their other problem. In our circles, we don't find too many people that we might liken to Sadducees. If a person comes in and they're theologically liberal, they're not going to be very comfortable in our setting. But there are plenty of those in our settings who struggle with the Pharisees' problems. Elevating the traditions of men to the level of the Word of God or being entirely hypocritical as it relates to the Word of God. Saying one thing and doing the exact opposite. Looking great on the outside but inside being a total mess. Religious but carnal. Religious but hypocritical. The Pharisees are a reflection of the doctrinally accurate but not the spiritually sensitive. They are a picture of those who have turned doctrinal truths into idols 
and sources of hypocrisy and of pride. They revel in the idea of looking at others and comparing themselves to others and deciding how they're better than everyone else and judging their standing with God based upon other people standing with God. Perceived, of course, rather than humility and obedience. It's not enough for us that we know sound doctrine, folks. It's not enough for you that you study the Word of God, that you read the Word of God, that you know the Word of God. It's not enough that you believe the, 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 the points of a systematic theology. We need to be godly people. We need to be godly people. Too many of us Christians have traded a relationship with God for knowledge about the things of God. Too many of us Christians have spent far too much time studying the nuances of the text and not enough time obeying the message of the text. Now, I'm not preaching against having sound doctrine. Please don't get me wrong. But sound doctrine, they're like the train tracks that you lay down. The tracks facilitate the train, but you've got to put a train on the tracks if you're going to get anywhere. We can have tracks laid all day, but it's not going to make a bit of difference until we start following those tracks. James said this in James 1, verses 22 to 25. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word... And not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. You all know I love knowledge. I love learning. I love studying. But no amount of hours in my office poring over the text is going to make me a godly man. We need to understand that. No number of sermons, no amount of Bible reading is going to make you a godly man. No amount of listening. You could pump yourself full of sermons all day. But if you are not obeying the word of God, it's not going to make you a godly person. Those things increase my godly potential as I learn. They give the spirit of God more, more to work with. But any of it, all of it, is only as good as the faith with which I appropriate it. It's only as good as the, the extent to which what I hear becomes what I believe. Because what I believe is what I do. Knowledge does not bring blessing. Faith brings blessing. And faith inspires work. Which means the blessings are not to those that hear, but the blessings are those who obey. We keep coming back to Luke 8 and Luke 11. In Luke 8, Jesus said, My, uh, they, they, they told uh, Jesus, your mother and your brethren are without. And Jesus answered in Luke 8, 21, my mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. And then Jesus said in, in Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. If you want to, Check your heart on this. Do a simple test. What drives you to read your Bible? To listen to teaching? Are you driven to know more or are you driven to obey more? Are you driven to come to church and to learn because you want to learn or because you want to obey? Because you actually want to find out how to be a better Christian or because you want to fill your head with more stuff. That'll be an interesting test for each of us. Is learning an exercise to know more? If that's all biblical learning is to you, then you're in danger of reflecting the same problem the Pharisees had. The believer's pursuit of knowledge is unto an end. I need to know him in order that I might obey him. I need to know him in order that I might obey him. If I don't know him, I can't obey him. But just knowing him does not mean I'm going to obey him, folks. Not the hearer of the word, but the doer of the word is blessed. James gives the example of looking into a mirror. We 
wake up in the morning and we get ready for wherever we're going to go and we look into a mirror. And of course, the best example of this is your hair, which is not a good example for me. But the idea being that you look into a mirror and you check to see if you're ready for the day. And if your hair is not what it ought to be, my beard is not what it ought to be, I correct it. If I've got something stuck in my teeth from breakfast, I, I get that out of my teeth. If I have a smudge on my face because I was working under the car, I get the smudge off my face. Now, if I look in that mirror and I gain the knowledge of how I look, my hair's disheveled, my beard's scraggly, I've got smudges on my face, and there's spinach everywhere in my teeth. And I say, wow, that's me. And then I just leave the house. I have the knowledge, but it has done me zero good. When I step into the word of God and I open the word of God and the spirit of God says, this is you, and you say, oh, that's not pretty. I've got two responses. I can either close the Bible and walk away the same person I left, pretending like I'm not who I am, or I can clean off the smudges, or I can brush my hair, clean up the beard. James says it's not the hearer of the word that is blessed. It's not the person that knows he's got the smudges on his face that is blessed. It's the person who, knowing he has the smudges, cleans them off. So much more I wish we could say, but I've overloaded you with information, I think, already. So the question is, how are you doing this evening? Um, if the Holy Spirit has impressed upon your heart truths this evening, may I encourage you to do something with them. If the Spirit of God is saying, you, you, you need this, you need this area, this thing needs to change, w would you be a doer of the Word tonight and not just a hearer? Are, are we drifting toward this danger of being so interested in, in, in knowledge that we have lost obedience? Let's not be that way. Let's guard ourselves because Jesus, at the end of all of this controversy, takes time to tell the people, beware of hypocrites.